Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. This week, the chaperone tells the story of movie legend Louise Brooks, or rather of someone who knew Louise. Ladies and gentlemen, Louise has recently been accepted to study dance in New York. She can't go without a chaperone. We haven't been able to find anyone. I'd like to propose myself. The aftermath recalls all those stiff upper lip movies of the post-war years. My daughter and I will stay out of your way until we move to the camp. What if we let them stay on? You mean live with them? And Kenneth Branagh's new film looks at Shakespeare the man, not the legend. It seems at the centre his life was resolutely ordinary, normal and human, which is also to say at one and the same time complex, complicated, difficult and full of all the things that we recognise if we've been in a family. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. The magic word this year has been diversity, often followed by complaints or occasionally muted optimism about how many films are being made by women, by people of colour, by members of the LGBTQ community and so on. But what about diversity on the other side of the screen, in the cinemas? You could be forgiven for thinking movies are only being made for two audiences. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. There are the consumers of comic book blockbusters, of course, currently catered to by the all-conquering The Avengers Endgame. And on the other side of the street, there are the over-60s. Hi, beautiful friends. I would like to introduce you to Christian Grey. Oh, no. We started this book club to stimulate our minds. From what I hear, this book is quite stimulating. <laughs> Older audiences are still loyal to the idea of movies and are often more open to the new and interesting than they're given credit for. But you wouldn't know it when you see some of the patronising fare targeting them. Costume dramas, creaky love stories starring veteran actors and, of course, endless films about World War II. This is the BBC. London suffered further heavy bombing raids last night. Welcome to the Ministry of Information Film Division. Mr Buckley seems to think you're what we need. We're doing what? We'll need someone to write the slop. Slop? Women's dialogue. But in fact, older people don't want to see films relentlessly tailored to their taste. They just want to see something good, like everyone else. At least Kevin Feige, producer of the Marvel Comics movies, knows what he's doing. And whatever your opinion of comic book films, you can't deny the Avengers Endgame is a brilliantly constructed culmination of ten years of build-up. Even if there's a small chance, we owe this to everyone who's not in this room. 
Well, later we talked to one of Feige's early collaborators, Sir Kenneth Branagh, who brought some Shakespearean panache to the first Thor movie. Branagh's new film, All Is True, goes back to the source, looking at Shakespeare's last few years. He went to London and became this great writer with a wife at home. You were hardly here. To us, you're a guest. Good night, husband. Retirement hasn't exactly brought the peace we might have hoped for. <laughs> but first, two rather more predictable outings for Grandma and Grandad. The Aftermath, starring Kira Knightley, set just after World War II. And first, from the Downton Abbey people, The Chaperone. Ladies and gentlemen, Louise has recently been accepted to study dance in New York. She can't go without a chaperone. We haven't been able to find anyone. I'd like to propose myself. Honey, don't you think... I would. I'd like to go. I think we're going to have a wonderful time. Downton Abbey was a television phenomenon, despite, in retrospect, an astonishing lack of content. It spent most of its time, the period before and after the First World War, ignoring the interesting stuff in favour of soapy antics above and below stairs. Downton's creator, Julian Fellows, does the same thing on The Chaperone. What did you think that they were going to have their way with me in the dining car under the table? Men don't like candy that's been unwrapped. I have not said anything funny. The hook of the film is it purports to tell the story of 1920s movie star Louise Brooks, a sensation in films like Pandora's Box, now all but forgotten. But Fellows seems far more interested in the more mundane story of Louise's fictional chaperone Norma, played by Downton's Elizabeth McGovern. What can I do for you? I want to learn about my birth parent, sister. I'm afraid I can't help you with that. I want to know who I am. And Fellows' famous tin ear for dialogue is once again on display. Birth parents feels more Oprah Winfrey than the Roaring Twenties, and so does much of the chaperone. If you're wondering what made Louise Brooks so fascinating and scandalous, you'll have to remain wondering, I'm afraid. How much will it be? No charge. I know you're pretty and the boys like you, but I'm here to protect you. I get the ice cream and they get the pleasure of my company. It seems rather unsporting at the end when they play some actual clips of Louise Brooks herself over the closing credits. A few seconds of silent black and white footage from a century ago are absolutely riveting even today and make the chaperone seem even more plodding than it already does. People can surprise you. They certainly can. Meanwhile, another film for the older audience is equally shown up by some illustrious predecessors. The aftermath set immediately after World War II stars Kira Knightley as Rachel, the wife of a British officer charged with clearing up the ruins of Hamburg in late 1945. Rachel. Hello, Lewis. Oh, look at you. You're still finding bodies. Chaos out there. Lewis, played by Jason Clark, is decent, hardworking, and understandably distracted by the mammoth task in front of him. Lewis and Rachel are billeted in a stately home owned by the Luberts, father and daughter. Hey, Lubitz. Hello, Morgan. Please come inside. This is my wife. My daughter and I will stay out of your way until we move to the camp. What if we let them stay on? You mean. Live with them. 
Well, as soon as you see Alexander Skarsgård exchanging heated glances with Kira Knightley, you have a pretty good idea where this might be going. Look out, Jason. Kira and Alexander are going to go all brief encounter on you shortly. If you're going to spy on a girl, the least you could do is pay her a compliment. Yes, of course. Brief Encounter was a famous tearjerker conjured up by Noel Coward and David Lean at the end of the war, showing three decent people struggling with feelings too strong to be denied. And in the background, ruined post-war Germany under the command of the Brits can't fail to remind you of another famous collaboration, Carol Reed and Graham Greene's The Third Man. During the war, did you ever hope for a German victory? Did the bombing affect the health of you and your family? It affected the health of my wife. She died in the firestorm. I'm so sorry. Brief Encounter meets the third man. How can it miss with the older audience, particularly since the three stars are so attractive? Well, it doesn't exactly miss, but when it hits, it's a glancing blow at best. You didn't tell me what I was walking into. This isn't how it was supposed to be. None of this is how it is supposed to be. Please don't go. I have a job to do. The mostly computer-generated images of Hamburg with barely a building standing and refugees being shepherded into camps are still shocking, but they obviously don't compare with the real-life footage of post-war Vienna in The Third Man. And similarly, the slightly unconvincing romance of the aftermath is dwarfed by the expert melodrama of Brief Encounter. But those early films weren't aiming to attract a specific target audience. They just wanted to be good. I never thought that I could be happy like this. Come with me. This is what you wanted. It's a novel approach these days, but it might be worth trying again someday. It's a new beginnings. Mr Shakespeare, I don't want to pester you. Good. Excellent news. Cheerio. I just wanted to ask you... The best way to get started as a writer is to start writing. No, really, could I just... I don't have a favourite play. I admire all my fellow dramatists equally, and yes, I do think women should be allowed to perform the female roles, as is the practice on the continent now. Please, if you'll excuse me. There are two myths about William Shakespeare. One is that hardly anything is known about his life, hence all the who-really-wrote-Shakespeare rumours, and the other is that he kept writing his extraordinary plays till the end and died, so to speak, in harness. Well, neither of these turns out to be true, and this is illustrated in a new film about the last years of the Swan of Avon called All Is True. It's directed by and stars a man who's been associated with Shakespeare most of his career. So, Kenneth Branagh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. So, do you remember your first brush with Shakespeare? I do. It was an odd one, you know. It was on television in the late 60s. I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I remember being at home, our little council house, Protestant working-class family, and on a Sunday night variety show, uh, there was a sketch by Peter Sellers, who was dressed, little did I know, as Laurence Olivier playing Richard III, and he was doing the lyrics from the Beatles song Hard Day's Night. For me, it was magnetic. I had no idea what was going on when I saw Peter Sellers going, It's been a hard day's night since I've been working like a dog. Um, and I said to my mum, What the heck is that? He said, Oh, well, that's, uh, you know, Peter Sellers, he's funny, and that's him doing the Beatles, doing Laurence Olivier doing Shakespeare. 
So already I knew, blimey, this Shakespeare fellow, he's kind of everywhere. And that weird, surreal experience of it uh, took me eventually to a school production, which got me hooked rather than school itself, which put me off for a bit. But in all cases, whenever I encountered it, you know, live and kicking, my first show was a terrific production of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. It, it had me hooked. I mean, you've made Hamlet, you've made Much Ado About Nothing, you've done uh, Henry V and Othello. Did you always hanker after playing the man himself? Well, uh, as I worked on the plays, I became more and more intrigued by what he regularly wrote about. So he often wrote about twins. He had twins of his own, and as we know through the film and through history, he lost his son Hamlet, who died of it would seem unknown causes when mm. Hamlet was 11 in, in 1596. And in the latter part of Shakespeare's career, he wrote often about the loss of children, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And I was in a production of Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale, with Judy Dench, who, who went on to be in our film of All Is True. And this sense of longing and heartbreak about the loss of a child inside a marriage seemed a very strong recurring theme in Shakespeare. And the more I worked on plays that involved that, the more I wanted to go back to the life of the man to see whether this preoccupation came from the real life. So who drove this film, Ken? Was it, was it you or was it the writer Ben Elton? We had talked about uh, working together many times. We've known each other for over 30 years. Uh, ben has written the brilliant situation comedy series about Shakespeare's life called Upstart Crow. And uh, I was lucky enough to be a guest in one of those episodes. And I'd long fancied doing something about these last years in Shakespeare's life. We know some of the things about it, and there's some very enticing areas of um, invitation for people who might be interpreting it. So I knew Ben was really well swatted up on his Shakespeare. But I also know and have done for a long time that he, quite aside from his sort of comic brilliance and his political nous and everything, can be a, a dramatic and serious writer in the more unfamiliar sense for those who are, who are aware of his work. And so I thought that he was not only very genned up on the subject, but he would be intrigued by the idea of pursuing a subject he knows well in a dramatic fashion. So I pitched the idea to him. He came up with a treatment, and then we just kept knocking it back and forth over a series of drafts. But the bulk of the idea and the shape is unquestionably Ben's. I said at the beginning of this that we know quite a bit about Shakespeare, which surprised me, actually. I thought he was one of these people where you know three facts and the rest of it you're making up. But a lot of this stuff is verifiable truth, isn't it? It is, and in our film we understand that when he returns to the Stratford after the, the burning of his famous Globe Theatre fact, he goes back to be involved in two sexual scandals that uh, concerned his daughters that the town bring actions against his family for... Uh, he does indeed buy a coat of arms that requires people to call him gentleman. He's involved in land dealings. Um, he is visited by uh, Ben Johnson as a rival. And, and generally, we see that the public record provides quite a number of facts, including the sad facts of his own son's uh, death. And, and the idea of, of a man returning to a family where he's been largely absent husband and father to face the very human consequences of what happens when you've been absent uh, and in a family that's had this major trauma, just because child mortality was high at that time would not have reduced, in my view, the pain felt by the families who suffered such a loss. 
So to go back and do that and try and find that emotional story was an exciting thing to do. What I think is tantalizing for some people and endlessly frustrating for others is that we know only a finite amount, as you say, more than people might reckon. Mm. But um, we still don't know the whole story of William Shakespeare. And that makes not only his work, but he himself, I think, endlessly interesting. The fact is that he was away for so much of his time. He was in London. And you would think that he would have taken his family with him, but his family stayed in Stratford, and as far as I know, he visited them rarely. What, what was his relationship... Well, in the film, what is his relationship with his family? Well, we know that he, he, he left uh, Stratford around about 18, having just been married to a woman significantly older than him for the time that they were married when she was uh, pregnant. And the sense is that he at least returned to Stratford once a year. I mean, it was not unusual for people from working backgrounds to go away to make their fortune to bring or to send money back. So it wasn't, wasn't entirely unusual. But in Shakespeare's case, we have some lost years when he first left Stratford that are hard to account for in the public record. But then, you know, he becomes really the most celebrated figure of the age. And we know that some of the family, it's on record, did visit London with him later on. It's hard to know whether his wife Anne did, but it is true to say, and as far as we can, that she was unable to read and write. And that also applied to his daughter Judith. And perhaps those issues made problematic the idea of, uh, of visiting London, because as the, as the film rather poignantly in Judy Dench's beautiful performance makes clear, it's a kind of tender irony that a woman married to the greatest writer of the age can neither read nor write. There's a wonderful scene with you and uh, Sir Ian McKellen, who plays the Earl of Southampton. He has a great line where he says, you have got the most enormous mind, but you're living the smallest of lives. That's an extraordinary dichotomy, isn't it? It is, and it's something that I think Ben felt strongly, that it's a sort of defining characteristic and encapsulates a sort of mystery about him. Uh, Flaubert said, you know, a few centuries later, uh, as an artist, it's important to be revolutionary in your creative life and bourgeois in your private life. <laughs> uh, Shakespeare seemed to have ticked the box on that one. He is not, as the later romantics were, someone like Byron was described as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. His own private life was as dangerous and as tragic and as controversial as anything he ever wrote. Whereas it seems there was a kind of familiarity, a normality, a prosaic quality to what appeared to be the preoccupation in Shakespeare's life. You know, owning property, uh, buying a coat of arms with the pretension that seems to imply for some people. The return to Stratford to be as modest man of money uh, alongside, if we believe that he was responsible for most or all of these 37, 38 plays, this incredible work ethic. Not only produced the written versions of 37 plays, let's say, but you're running a theatre which is also producing, and he is producing and directing and acting in many other plays of all the other great playwrights of the age, like Christopher Marlowe and Ben Johnson. How on earth could you have time for the crazy, exotic life of the genius <laughs> that other people would prefer to have Shakespeare be. They want him to be the man that bestrode the narrow world like a colossus, living large. How else did he get his information? How did he create these stories? Well, of course, he raided the great writers of the past, is what he did, Hollinshed and Plutarch and the Norse myths and everything. But it seems at the centre, his life was resolutely ordinary, normal and human, which is also to say at one and the same time, complex, complicated, difficult, 
and full of all the things that we recognise if we've been in a family. We love the idea of Shakespeare. We love the idea of this jobbing writer, the man who invented the blockbuster, the romantic comedy, the star-crossed young lovers, you know, the knockabout comedy. Just a guy who could just do all of this stuff. He was MGM. Yes, he, 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 well, he, he was, and, uh, and I think we are attracted to this idea of somebody like that who also, you know, as he talks about in his plays, holds the mirror up to nature. He also mm. makes it possible... For somebody like me coming from a working-class background and going into something as mysterious and far away as the classical theatre with all its apparent privilege or sort of esoteric exclusivity or whatever, the idea that a guy that we don't even know went to grammar school could have made that journey from a tiny Warwickshire town that would have felt like a million miles away from the great metropolis of London been a very quiet, dark place. Uh, and yet makes it all the way to the big city. And I see that your next film is a salute to another great English writer. This is Dame Agatha Christie, and I guess after Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile was inevitable, wasn't it? Well, you know, it's a terrific story, and it's one that she particularly liked. She was proud of it. She says in her introduction she felt that it had a reality. It certainly has at the centre of it a burning, passionate, physical desire that's spread out amongst this triangle of young people and in Agatha Christie's own life and in exotic locations she had very troublesome relationships that eventually led in heartbreak for her so it feels as though for all its um, exotic locales that there's something very personal and sort of primal about death on the Nile it's the least drawing room mystery and it's the most sleeves rolled up primal, lustful, murder conundrum uh, amongst her books. And a final question, I guess. Have have you seen the new Avengers movie yet? No, I shall be there this very weekend, uh, for sure. I've read a wonderful review of it this morning in the UK Guardian, and I feel some pride that... uh, When you now see the great Marvel locomotion that seems unstoppable, we were part of the first wave, really just the third movie at the beginning of that little artistic enterprise that turned out to be this worldwide phenomenon. And although the character of Thor in those movies has morphed across the subsequent ones, there was always the feeling, Kevin Feige always used to say, that if we got Thor wrong, that whole idea wouldn't work because it was the character and the stories that created the the most challenging tonal difficulty for a creator and for audience, but that that very difficulty and that difference in tone, that fantastical element, was going to be absolutely critical to sustaining variety in the subsequent films of their universe. So I know in the end, a trillion other things were at work to produce the phenomenon that that it is, but I'm proud of our little beginning to something that uh, has given so many people so much pleasure. I was going to ask you whether you saw any comparisons between Kevin Feige and Shakespeare. Well, what I'd observe about Kevin is, A, that he loves comic books and comic book movies. He's very clear about that. And secondly, his work ethic is quite remarkable. I've never seen anybody have that combination of absolute devotion and joy in what they do and a work ethic that will leave no stone unturned. It's a dynamite combination. He wants to make the best comic book movies because he loves watching them, he loves making them. And, and he's happy to work hard to do so. That sounds a bit like Shakespeare to me, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs>
Sir Kenneth Branagh talking about his film All Is True, the rather sweet view of Shakespearean retirement with terrific performances by him and Judy Dench as the first Anne Hathaway. Which brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.